Father, we pray that you would give us the mind of Christ. Help us to think your thoughts after you. Help us to believe these words and to be transformed by them. So, Lord, we ask you to open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are right in the middle of the Christmas season, and that means that many of us are right in the middle of making preparations for that day. We're decorating, we are buying gifts, some of us are preparing to travel to visit family. Uh, just this last week at our house, we hosted a Christmas party for my daughter's eighth grade class, so some of us are already eating too much. Some of us are already watching Christmas movies. Um, at our house, we have a handful that we like to watch together as a family on Friday nights during the Christmas season. It always starts for us now with Miracle on 34th Street right after Thanksgiving, because that begins with Thanksgiving. And uh, we watched Rudolph after that. Two nights ago, we watched White Christmas. Anybody watch White Christmas anymore? Uh, White Christmas is still a classic at our house. Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye and Rosemary Clooney. Um, we have a few more to watch before the season's over, but my favorite one, we still haven't watched yet. I wonder if you can guess what my favorite one is. It's a Wonderful Life. That's right. You got it. Nikki got it. So It's a Wonderful Life is my favorite one. And um, 1946, think about how long ago that was. What is that, 73 years ago? And we're still watching that movie. How many of you will watch that before the Christmas season's over? Yeah, a bunch of you. What is it about that movie that after all these years we're still watching it and it still resonates? I think it's all about that main character, George Bailey. This guy has all these plans to conquer the world. He's going to leave that one-horse town and he's going to make his fortune. And yet, he ends up never leaving his little backwater hometown. He never gets out of his father's old drafty building and loan. He never travels the world or makes his fortune. And yet by the end of the movie, you're convinced that he's the richest man in the world. In fact, you wish you could be like him. But why would anybody want to be like George Bailey? Well, I think there's two moments in the film that, that really sum it up for me. The first one is when the evil Mr. Potter attempts to shut down the building and loan just after George Bailey's father dies. And then George swoops into that board meeting and he gives the speech of his life explaining why this town needs this one horse, this one horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without having to crawl the potter. And the only way for, it to, for the place to stay open, though, is for him to stay and to run it himself. And so he postpones his dreams and he stays home. The second moment is when George's little brother returns home from college. It's George's turn to go to college, his brother's turn to run the building and loan. But his brother shows up at the train station with a new wife and with a new lucrative job offer. And there's this moment, and I think that Jimmy Stewart plays it so well, there's this moment where George Bailey turns aside and he gets this grave look of realization on his face and he steals himself. And then he puts on a big smile and he turns towards his brother and his new wife and he gives them the warmest welcome possible. And George 
again, he doesn't leave home. He launches his brother out, and George stays there, and he runs the building alone, and he never makes it to college. And as George watches one dream after another vanish right before his eyes, he never seems to realize that he has really built something beautiful right in front of them something pure and good and true, and that he never would have gotten had he left Bedford Falls. And so an angel appears at just the right moment to show him what would have happened to his family and to his community if all his acts of sacrifice and courage would never have happened. And, and you know the rest. And if you don't know the rest, you really need to go watch this, this, this movie. But think about this. Have you ever stopped to think what your life would have been like if all the acts of courage and sacrifice that people have done on your behalf, if those things never would have happened? How many of you have parents who loved you and who raised you well? Isn't it sad that you don't really understand what parents do for you until you actually get into it and you're doing it yourself? It's a thankless job for so long, isn't it? But what would your life have been like without what your parents poured into you? How many of you didn't have parents like that, but you did have other people who stepped in at crucial times and who stood in the gap for you? What would your life have been like without them? Now imagine this. What would your life and family be right now? What would they be like if you were to withhold all of your goodness to them. If you were to withhold your perseverance and good deeds for them, your sacrifice and your courage to hang in there when the going gets tough, what would your family be missing if you were missing? Would you be missed like George Bailey was missed? Here's the even tougher question. Are you missed right now even though you're there? Are there certain things that your family are not experiencing from you that they should be experiencing from you? I want you to open up your Bibles to the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at verses 13 and 14. And when I began preparing this series of messages on the last chapter of 1 Corinthians 16, I thought that I would be doing two sermons on this chapter but when I began studying and meditating on this chapter this past week, it became clear that I really thought verses 13 through 14 needed to be a sermon all their own. So in my last message on 1 Corinthians 16, I mentioned that the key verse in this chapter is actually verse 14, where it says, let all that you do be done in love. And so Paul is establishing that he wants love to be the theme that pervades the lives of God's people. He wants it to characterize all that we do, not just some things that we do, not just the religious things that we do, not just the things that you do with your family. He says, let all that you do be done in love. And in this text, it involves specific commands about standing firm in the faith. So as you're reading this, you, it's really clear that it's wrong to pit truth and love against one another. Paul believes that truth and love are friends. They are not enemies. 
And where both of these two items, truth and love, are cultivated together, sometime something really beautiful grows up right before your eyes, even if it comes at great sacrifice to you. And so Paul, throughout chapter 16, it commends these seven expressions of love. I gave the first three in my last message, but this message, we're going to focus on the fourth. It's love for the faith in verses 13 through 14. And so if you're going to love the faith, you're going to have bring truth and love together, and you're not going to fall away from the faith. If you're going to have that, you're going to have to heed these five commands that Paul gives in these two verses. And these five commands are really implying five different virtues that the Holy Spirit wishes to cultivate inside each one of us. And those five virtues are this. They're readiness, steadfastness, courage, strength, and love. And those are the five points of the sermon. Readiness, steadfastness, courage, strength, and love. So the first thing is this. It's readiness. Look at verse 13. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, I've labeled this first point readiness because of those first two words in the, in the verse. It says, be watchful. The Greek verb underneath that, that translation is the term gregorete. So if you're named Gregory or if your name is Greg, your name literally means watchfulness. So when this term appears elsewhere in Scripture, in places other than this verse, it's often referring to staying awake, like literally staying awake, not being asleep. So, for example, when Jesus was in the garden, just before he was arrested, he turns to Peter and to James and to John, and he says to them, My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Gregor Reo, same word. Stay awake with me. Of course, Peter, James, and John didn't stay awake with him. They fell asleep, and Jesus was arrested right after that. But the term indicates this being awake or wakeful. And so that's why the term appears elsewhere in Scripture, a little less literally, to talk about being awake spiritually. And by awake, what we mean by that is alert and ready, not asleep, not unprepared. So think, for example, of Matthew chapter 24 and verse 42, where Jesus says, therefore, be on the alert. There's our word. Be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. What happens if the Lord comes back and you are not ready? Well, depends on what we mean by ready. If, if you're not thinking about the fact that the Lord is returning, if you live as if he's never coming back to judge the living and the dead, how are you going to live? You are going to live indulging the flesh and the devil, and you're not going to be serving Jesus if you're not ready. But if you believe that he's coming back and that he will judge you and he will rescue his own from the wrath to come, if, if that's true and that's what you believe, how are you going to live? Well, you're going to be watchful over your life. You aren't going to ignore Jesus. You're not going to ignore his word. You're going to trust in him and obey him and everything that he has said. That's readiness. That's watchfulness. That's what he's talking about. This same term from 1 Corinthians 16 also appears on the lips of the Apostle Paul in his address to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Let me just read it to you. 
He says this. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. There's our word. Be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. Notice that in in Acts, this text, being ready isn't merely about being alert to the flesh and to temptation. It's about being alert to the fact that there are people who want to corrupt God's people with false teaching. These people are going to look the part. They're going to look like real disciples, but they're not going to live and teach like real disciples. No, they're going to speak twisted things in order to entice people away from following Jesus. And Paul is saying, be alert, be wakeful, be ready for this. So so are you getting an idea of what, what being alert involves? It involves being ready for the world, for your own flesh and the devil to come after you. It means that you shouldn't be surprised or astonished when you face opposition to following Jesus or when you find it hard to follow Jesus for whatever reason, from the world or from the flesh or from the devil. You should be expecting it and you should be ready. If you aren't ready, then you are more likely to be knocked down by the opposition when it comes to you. Nobody likes being punched in the stomach, right? For any reason. However, your readiness for the blow to the stomach makes all the difference in the world in terms of the potential for pain. If my little girl Lucy were to come up to me and slug me in the stomach, I'm strong enough and she's weak enough that if I just brace my stomach muscles, I can take that hit with very little difficulty. But if she catches me not ready and she lands that same blow in the middle of my stomach, she can double me over in pain with with that. There's way more damage to be done when I'm not ready for it. If my eight-year-old son, Denny, and I were to get in a football stance and square off against each other, there's no way he's knocking me down. No way he's knocking me down. But you know what? Sometimes we'll be around the house, And sometimes he'll be jumping around and he might jump on me when I'm not ready. And you know what happens when he does that? He can knock me off balance. And if he were to go fast enough at me with me not being ready, he could probably knock me over. Readiness makes all the difference in the world. Spiritually, it's the difference between getting knocked down or keeping on your feet. And so here's the question. Are you ready for the kinds of attacks that afflict believers on a daily basis? Are you ready? Are you prepared for the kinds of temptations that Paul has been referring to even in this letter? I think he probably, when he says be ready, I think he's thinking about everything he's just said to them in the letter. For example, in chapters 1 through 4, Paul has, he warns them against divisions in the body. Divisions based on their devotion to different teachers. I think they had a little bit of celebrity worship going on there. Paul now is saying, be ready. Are you aware enough of your own temptations in your own heart to let your heart go out to celebrity worship, to be devoted to different teachers in such a way that you can only listen to certain people teach you? 
and you look down upon and despise others? Is your heart poised to believe God's truth or do you have to be entertained before you'll listen to certain people? Paul says that can lead, that spirit can lead to division in a church that will tear it apart. Are you, are you aware of the things in your own dispositions that can lead to these, those kinds of divisions? You remember in chapter 7 and verses 1 through 7, Paul warns about what happens to married couples when they fail to come together in regular conjugal union, Paul says they open up their marriage to all kinds of temptations from the outside. Are you ready for the challenges that are common to marriage? The devil knows that if he can destroy intimacy and interest in a marriage, then he can get a foothold to blow up the whole thing. Is this something you're ready for? Or are you passive with respect to your marriage? I've said it before, I'll say it again. Good marriages happen on purpose. Bad marriages happen by default. If you are not actively engaged in cultivating your relationship with your spouse, you're not ready. And you'll be knocked down really easily. So you've got to be on the alert and be ready or you will lose your balance in situations that you otherwise wouldn't lose your balance in if you were just watchful and ready. So Paul says, if you're going to have a love for the truth, a love for the faith, you've got to have readiness, but you've also got to have steadfastness. Look again at verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Now that word stand firm is a little bit like that first term in that it has both a literal, literal and a figurative meaning. Literally, that word means to, to be in a standing position like I am right now. But figuratively, this word refers to being firmly committed in conviction or belief, being steadfast. The idea is not merely that you're standing firmly in your beliefs, but that you're doing so in the face of opposition. The opposition that you are supposed to be ready for, according to the first command, to be alert. So steadfastness is not the same thing as being selfishly stubborn. That's not the point here. The idea that you're going to stubbornly oppose anyone or anything that that ever contradicts you. That, that's not what Paul's asking for. Paul specifies, actually, that you're to stand firm in the faith, not stand firm in your own will and willfulness, but you stand firm in the faith, your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a couple of commentators who put it this way. They say that to stand firm is to hold one's ground in a battle rather than to surrender or run away in the face of fearful fearful face of fearful opposition. To stand firm in the faith is not merely to hold strongly to doctrinal convictions, but also, and perhaps especially, to persist in acting in a way that is consistent with faith in Christ. I think that's exactly right, because standing firm in the faith, it's not just believing right, it's doing right. It's, the, the proof is in the pudding. It means that it that you have to stand firm at the point of conflict. That's what steadfastness is. One of my favorite quotations comes from the apocryphal Martin Luther. No doubt many of you have heard this one before, but let me read it, read it to you. It says this, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the word of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, 
I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefront besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Did you catch that? What that means is that if you are standing firm in those points of your faith that aren't being challenged, well, that's great, but you're not really proving your loyalty until you're tested. You know, we had a business meeting a couple of weeks ago. What if the elders had brought before this church a candidate for elder and we introduced him, let's call him Joe, and uh, we laid out all of Joe's qualifications. He's trustworthy. He's not an angry man, not pugnacious. He's really solid in his doctrinal convictions, really apt in his teaching. We check off all the boxes from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus. But then we say, but there's this one thing about Joe that you need to know. He's not married to the woman that you keep seeing him with. They, they live together. They don't believe in the formalities of marriage, so they're not married. Uh, but they're really committed to each other for these last two years. <laughs> so everything checks off except this one thing. Are we going to affirm that guy as an elder? Well, yeah, no, we're not. We're not going to. Why? Because it doesn't matter how faithful he is in all those other areas if he's unfaithful at precisely that point that the world and the devil are right now attacking. And right now the world and the devil are attacking marriage. What it is, what sexuality, I mean, the world and the devil are attacking that. And you're not faithful if you're faltering at that point. Christianity is not a choose-your-own-adventure. You don't get to follow the parts that are easy and then discard the parts that cause conflict with the world. On the contrary, your faithfulness is proven especially in the parts that cause conflict with the world. It's proven especially in the parts that you have to contend for. That's why it's not okay to call yourself a Christian if you're simply following the parts about Christ that you like and discarding the other parts that you don't like. Somebody will say, well, you know, I like feeding the poor and standing against human trafficking. I really don't care so much for what the Bible says about sexual morality. Maybe what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 about those who won't inherit the kingdom of God. Well, when somebody says that, it, you have to realize it just so happens that caring for the poor and standing against human trafficking, those are good things. They're also things that the world will, will congratulate you for. But standing up for and living out what the Bible says about marriage and sexual morality, that, those are the areas, that's the part of following Christ that's going to cause you problems today. If you aren't willing to follow Christ when it's hard, then you're really not ready to follow him at all. Jesus says in Mark chapter 8 and verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Steadfastness. It means you're not ashamed of Jesus and his words in this adulterous generation. You love his words. They're pure words. They're good words. And you hold to his words no matter what conflict comes to you because of it. So that's why Paul insists that we have to stand firm. We have to stand at precisely those points that are being challenged by the world and our flesh and by the devil. 
We stand firm in what we believe and in what we do. To leave following Christ on either account is to shipwreck our faith. So Paul commends readiness, steadfastness, but then third, courage. But look how he words this in verse 13. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. I really appreciate that the ESV and the NASB translate that phrase literally, act like men. This is an idiom that means roughly the same thing that we mean whenever we say things like be a man or man up. It means put away whatever inhibitions or fears that you have about doing something and do it. The commentators, uh, Siampa and Rosner, they describe it this way. They say, to be courageous is to faithfully carry out one's responsibilities, even in the face of extreme danger and frightening circumstances. So it's, it's like walking out on the high dive at the public swimming pool. You, you know, kind of walk. Maybe you remember this as a kid, first time you ever did something like this. You walk out slowly to the edge of the board, and when you see how far down it is, your stomach maybe catches up into your throat, and you start staring down trying to figure out whether or not you're really going to go through with this. And you're taking so long that the line behind you is getting impatient, and somebody yells at you, come on, man up. They're looking at your apprehension and your fear, and they are telling you to get over it and to get on with it. And so what do you do? Hopefully you man up and you jump. In other words, this is an expression that's calling for courage, isn't it? In fact, the NIV translated as, it translates it straight up as be courageous. It's calling us to put aside whatever fears we have about the conflict we face for following Christ and to get on with it. In this sense, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to overcome fear and apprehension because you fear God more than you fear man, more than you fear any consequences. We all understand that following Christ is sometimes going to be hard. It's sometimes going to be scary. It's going to feel risky. But what pushes us forward is not that we don't find those things to be scary or that we don't find things to be risky. What pushes us forward is that we love and trust Christ even more than our fears. That's what pushes us forward. And so Paul says, act like men. I think it's worthy of note that Paul's not reluctant to associate courage with manhood. There's, I think there's two probably two dimensions to this. It's not just manhood in distinction from womanhood. I think it's manhood in distinction from boyhood. But he's, he's associating courage with manhood. Being courageous means acting like a man. Why would Paul say something like that? Is he trying to say that women are so, only men are supposed to be courageous and women aren't? He's not saying that. This command is directed to everybody at the Corinthian, in the Corinthian congregation, isn't it? He's telling all of them to act like men and to be courageous. Not just the, the males in the congregation. Everybody is supposed to be this way. But still, Paul associates strength and courage with masculinity. And you can see that that perspective is embraced throughout Scripture. That's why I had, uh, we had Peter read from 1 Kings 2.2 in, in our Scripture reading earlier. It's David's deathbed exhortation to his son 
and his heir Solomon. And David says this. Well, the text says this. It says, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. Show yourself a man. He's, he's basically saying, you're going you're gonna to encounter conflict. And it's going to be costly sometimes to walk in the testimonies of the Lord. But you've got to show yourself a man. And you've got to do this. The scripture is not afraid to speak stereotypically about natural masculine strength and to apply that to character. Because of that, I think that we have to recognize that there's something very fundamental about masculine virtue, even as we recognize that the command of courage applies to all of us, both male and female followers of Christ. So he talks about readiness, steadfastness, courage, fourth, strength. Look at verse 13 again. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Again, we have a term that can be used literally or figuratively. Literally, it's talking about physical strength. But there's also this figurative application of this term that's talking about spiritual strength, like in Luke chapter 1 and verse 80, where it says that Jesus grew and became um, strong in spirit. Actually, I think that was about John the Baptist. But Paul uses that same word in his prayer for the saints living in Ephesus. Um, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17, Paul prays for the Ephesian believers that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He's not talking about physical strength, he's talking about spiritual strength, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So, in other words, he's talking about a kind of strength, spiritually, that enables you to stand whenever the conflict comes. If you have no strength, you won't stand in the face of the conflict. Uh, last night, Joe Burrow won the Heisman Trophy. Some of you watched that. Last week, I watched a video of Joe Burrow. Um, before he played for LSU, he played for Ohio State University, the Ohio State University. And there was this video of when he was still a, a player for the Ohio State University, and he was in a strength contest with one of his teammates. And all the team is standing around, and Joe Burrow and one of his teammates have a tire, a car tire in the middle of them, and they both grab one side of the tire, and, they, and the, the object is to drag the other guy across a line that's behind you. And whoever can drag the tire and the guy is the guy who wins. And Burrow grabs that tire, and he manhandles that guy <laughs> across this line that's behind him. And he scraps, and he pulls, and he pushes it was a, a show of brute strength. So Burrow has a lot of natural strength. But what if he never lifted weights or trained or conditioned? Would he have had the strength to win the Heisman without that kind of training? I don't think he would have. He wouldn't even have been able to win that little strength contest that was on YouTube. Strength is what enables you to overcome when the conflict comes. And just like physical strength, it involves training and discipline to be spiritually strong. It means giving yourself over to the means of grace that God has appointed to enable you to walk the road ahead when it gets hard. 
So you have to be thinking of what strengthens me in my inner man. It's the means of grace that God, have appoint, God has appointed, and they're rather ordinary. They're not flashy, but they are absolutely necessary for you. And the fundamental thing, the first thing, is actually meeting together with God's people to worship and to pray and to hear the word of God preached. That is the ordinary means of grace that God is using to sanctify you and to strengthen you. It's just being here and being a part of this fellowship and having the word of God poured into you. God uses that word. He uses this fellowship to press his grace into your life and to make you strong for the days ahead. It's, it's a wonderful means of grace that he's given to us. He uses this table as a means of grace. Not only that, in our culture, in our place in history, we have access to copies of the Bible in our homes. We can get the Bible at church every week, week in and week out, but we can get it in, in the days in between. Did you know it's not always been that way for people in, who are Christians? It's not always been the case that people could have access to the Bible when they were at home and they weren't at church. We live in a particular time in history. We have access to the Word every day if we want it. We have all this access to the means of grace, and all these are the normal means by which God works to change and transform you and to strengthen you. So that when you take the punch to the gut, there's enough muscle there to withstand the blow. But you've got to be working on those, those muscles. So there's readiness, steadfastness, courage, strength. Fifth is verse 14 is love. He says this, finally, let all that you do be done in love. And notice, what's the all that you do? Be watchful, standing firm in the faith, acting like men, being strong. Let all that you do in the midst of those virtues, let all of it done, be done in love. And for some people, this may seem a little bit counterintuitive. Why is, he, why is he talking? He's talking about all this strength, manliness, courage. And then he kind of goes over to this soft, wimpy thing, love. If you're thinking about love that way, you're thinking about it wrong. Love is not soft and, and wimpy at the end of the day. In fact, the Bible describes love as the sin qua non Christian virtue. It is self-sacrificially giving yourself to others. It does not seek its own, but it always seeks the good of others. It's a warm regard or an interest in another person. And it is the bottom line Christian virtue. Jesus said it this way in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, if you don't have this, you don't have anything. In fact, Paul says it in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. He says, if I have prophetic powers, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Love is the first fruit of the Spirit. If you are without love, you are without the Spirit. So love is absolutely essential. And so it's no surprise that Paul commands, let all that you do be done in love. All your readiness all your steadfastness, all of your courage, all of your strength, if there's no love in it, it's not of the Spirit, and it's sub-Christian. So strength and love have to come together, don't they? 
you know what it is that makes us love George Bailey? It's not just his courage and his steadfastness. It's his love. That's what's compelling about this character. He loves his wife. He loves his kids. He loves his mother and his dad. He loves his dad's work so much that he even takes over his dad's work. He loves his brother to the point of laying aside his own dreams so that his brother could have his dreams. He loves Martini and all the other families in Bedford Falls that he provided homes for. The whole thing is a story about love. So that when you contemplate a Bedford Falls without George Bailey, you're contemplating a Bedford Falls without love. That's what that alternate vision is. And so you have to ask yourself what we asked ourselves at the beginning. What would your life look like if the love that other people poured into your life, if it were never there? What would your own family and even this church look like if your love weren't here? It would be a nightmare. But when it's there, it grows into the most beautiful and fruit-bearing vine that you've ever seen. Even if expressing that love and living it out causes you great sacrifice and pain. God will take that and grow it into something beautiful and good. So this is what Paul's calling us to. Readiness, steadfastness, courage, strength, and love. If you're here this morning, and you're listening to this, and you're thinking, you sound like pie in the sky. Nobody lives like this. Nobody does this. You can see that in movies, but you don't see that in life. That's not true. You can see this in life. And the source of this kind of life is not something that we can conjure up in ourselves. We don't muster these kinds of virtues up and see them played out in any kind of consistent way in anybody's life apart from the grace of God. And so if this life looks attractive to you and good to you, even if strange to you, you need to know that the only way that you can have this is through Jesus. The Bible says that none of us are these things naturally because all of us are sinners. All of us have broken covenant with God which means that we justly deserve punishment from God. But God so loved the world that he sent his son, his one and only son, his only begotten son, to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we should have died. And he died on a cross. And God gave him the punishment that we deserved so that he could give us the life that we don't deserve. And because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, the Bible says that all you have to do is turn from your sin and believe in Christ and you will be saved. You will inherit forgiveness of sins and a transformed life through the Spirit of God. This invitation to this kind of life is open to anyone who wants to come. You say, but I'm a big sinner. It's, it's a message for you then. This is a message for sinners. All you need to do is repent and believe. And if you haven't done that, then you need to do it today. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you'd use this word to make us more like Jesus. I pray that you would work into our hearts, readiness, steadfastness, and courage, and strength, and love. Make us look like Jesus, Lord. Help us not to falter. 
at the point of conflict, but help us to stand. Make us strong. And if anyone is here, Lord, who doesn't know you, I pray that you would awaken in them a desire and a love for Christ and for this gospel. And I pray that you'd save them. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.